series called The Questioning God, and um, where we're looking at the brilliance of God as he asks questions throughout the scripture. Now, it's interesting to think about that. God doesn't ask questions because he's in need of information, right? God's all-knowing. So when he asks questions, he's doing that for our benefit, right? That he, He's using questions to get to the heart of important matters and to cause us to think and to go deeper and to expose our hearts and to get in there directly. So today's question is getting at a subject that, that we claim is very important here at The Journey. Um, our mission statement is to love God, connect people, and transform the world. And, and within that, the connect people piece, we talk a lot about community. Um, we're, we're different than a lot of churches in that we don't do Sunday school. Instead, we do community groups. We have a, a wall dedicated out there for, for you to connect with those. Um, and we, we often explain that the purpose of doing community groups instead of other uh, forms of teaching and discipleship, whatever you want to call it, is that it's based on this idea that we want to do more than just Bible study, but we want to do life together. And, and that's kind of vague. We don't know what that means, but that's what we say, right? And so we, we, we really want to press in on the fact that we want to get to know one another. We don't want to just share information, and, 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 but we want to get into each other's lives. And we also say that we want to read the Bible in circles and not just in rows. Like we want to get to where we're looking at one another, calling one another out, knowing each other's struggles, and being able to speak truth to one another. And so we talk a lot about community. And so while that does set us apart from a lot of traditional churches, the truth is, like, we're, we're not alone. Like, we didn't come up with this. In fact, it's, it's quite the buzzword, community amongst church leadership, conferences and books and those types of things. It's, uh, it's very much a kind of a, a trend in the contemporary culture to uh, talk about community, to make that a, a core value for, for different churches. And so, obviously, we don't think that's, that's wrong. Like, we've made it a part of our core ministry and a part of our mission statement here at the church. But too often, I think we take the idea of community and we make it a strategy or an objective in and of itself. And, and so Jesus' passage today and Jesus' question in this passage is going to remind us why this matters in the first place. It's really going to show us why community isn't just a contemporary like strategy of churches, but it's really at the heart of the gospel itself. So before we get into this, if we kind of pause and zoom out onto God's redemptive story, like the, the entire story, and hopefully maybe you've been reading with us in the Read Scripture plan this year, and you've been in the Old Testament uh, with us, and you know that a, like what God has been doing from the very beginning, he's, he's set out to restore the brokenness that we brought to the world through sin and rebellion. Okay, and, and that, the effects of that very thing, Genesis 3, uh, the, those effects and that fracture goes deep into every, really every aspect of life. But one of the primary ways that we feel that, one of the primary places that that's made an impact is on our relationships. You know, I don't have to explain that to you. It's easy to kind of look out and go, yeah, like our, our relationships are fractured and it is always a result of sin. But what we, if, we, if we look a little closer, what we can see, though, is that in God's plan to restore, redeem, and uh, heal the broken world, he's always intended to do it through a people, through a family, really. You, you see that he chooses one man named Abram, and, and he changes his name, gives him a new identity, and says, through your family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless the whole world. I'm going to make this thing new. And then the rest of the Old Testament is really following the, the life of this family, that though they don't deserve it, the people of Israel, God chooses to be, and, and there's intimacy even in what he says. He says, I, I want you to be my people, and I will be your God. There's an intimacy there. There's a familial feel to that. 
And so the rest of the Old Testament is kind of recounting their rebellion, their undeservedness, and yet God's faithfulness as a covenant father to them. But we know that all uh, everything in the Old Testament is really just leading up to, foreshadowing, getting us to Jesus, right? And that Jesus comes on the scene, and, and he's, it's not a new story. He's, fin- he's finishing what the Old Testament has started. He is the culmination and the climax and the substance of everything that the Old Testament has looked forward to, foreshadowed, and said would happen. Jesus comes to embody that and make that happen. So G- God's idea of restoring the world has always been about a people. It's always been about a family. It's always been about restoring relationships in that way and really taking forward his full mission and his full message of salvation in the gospel through that family and through what we would become. And so Jesus is is, is really going to get to the heart of this matter and really paint us a picture of what that looks like today uh, in this passage. And so as we get back into this, it's important to kind of uh, look at the immediate context of Matthew. This story is tucked into a really an intense part of Jesus' story here on earth. And if you've spent time reading the Gospels, then you know that Jesus had a lot of time where he was engaged in tension with the religious leaders of the day. Right? They, they are uh, concerned about him. They're jealous of him. They don't like his following. They don't like his, his teaching of grace. He's bringing in outsiders. He's bringing in unclean people. He's healing people. He's speaking with authority. He's challenging them, and they don't like it. He's, he's gaining influence, and they're concerned. And so the religious leaders of the day are often coming to Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to trick him, trying to catch him in something that they can officially charge him with. And there, we know that there's already, at this point in the story, um, a plot to kill Jesus, a plot to arrest him and, and kill him. And so Jesus has just spent time in another one of those dialogues. And at one point earlier in chapter 12, he, he made the statement in verse 30 that whoever is, is not with me is against me. So that kind of begs the question of, okay, well, then who, who is with me? And Jesus is going to make that point um, really painfully clear as we look at this passage here in uh, verse 46. And so um, here in this passage, we see that um, Jesus has, we're going to see Jesus' family. And by family, I mean like his, his mother and his brothers. So Jesus, uh, we, we kind of forget about that sometimes, but Jesus had an earthly mom, right? The Holy Spirit um, caused her to conceive, and so he was, uh, was born of a virgin, but, but she had more kids. And so Jesus not only has an earthly mom and a stepdad, but he has um, siblings. He has half-brothers and sisters. And so um, we're going to see them show up in the story. And, and as you think about Jesus' ministry, and he's gaining all this influence, and he's doing all these amazing things, you might think that his family would be kind of his number one fans, right? His, his closest followers. But what we see here, in, and really in several other places in the Gospels, is that uh, that's actually not the case, at least at this point in the ministry. We see that uh, here in verse 46, that while he was still speaking... To the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So the term outside there lets us know that they, they weren't following him as one of his disciples, at least at this time. So uh, his disciples, we're going to see later, are inside. But his, his family comes from the outside, and they're asking to speak to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what they want to say. We don't know exactly why they're there. Uh, but we've got a few other instances recorded in some of the other Gospels that give us some insight. We know that in, in Mark chapter 3... Uh, verse 21, that his family came uh, to him at one point. They went out to him to seize him for what he was saying, for they were saying that he is out of his mind. So basically they're like, okay, Jesus, you've gone too far, man. Like, it's cool that you got some power. It's cool that you're a really good teacher, but you claiming to be God, like people are trying to kill you. 
that you're pushing the limits. And so they come to kind of talk some sense into him, like pull him aside, like, hey, we, we love you and we're concerned that you're, you're going to get killed. So at least once we know that they come to take him home because they think he's gone too far. Now, on this side of the story, it's kind of easy to look back and judge them. But I want you to kind of remember the humanity of it. She would kind of think through if you're in their position, right? If that's one of your family members, if that's your baby boy and you're the mama, like, and you know that, um, yes, he's gaining influence, but he's also gaining opposition. And the opposition that he's gaining is very powerful and that the, the threats against his life are very real. And it's a little easier to relate to them pulling him aside and being concerned for his life. And so, um, I think that's just a really good reminder for us, though, that the, about the nature of the gospel. Like, that, that it's a radical mission that Jesus is on and, and one that he calls us to follow him. Like, that this sort of response from, from your family um, isn't prompted by just good moral behavior. Like, in, in our culture, a lot of times, that's what we've reduced Christianity to. It's like this safe thing that we do, and it's what the good people do as we go to church, whatever. But, but that doesn't... Res- prompt this kind of response from a family. Like if you're just going to church and doing the safe moral thing, like you're not going to offend or worry anybody. But, but Jesus has offended a lot of people and he's got his family worried. But this passage is really uh, Jesus living out what he taught and predicted earlier in his ministry whenever he said that anyone that loves his father or mother more than him is not fit for the kingdom. Remember that passage? That's a tough teaching, right? That causes you to kind of give pause and go, wait, wait. Like, that's, that's difficult. And then Jesus said in another place that, that he's not necessarily going to bring unity to every family. In fact, a lot of families are going to be divided because of his name, because of his kingdom. So a couple quick things as, as a bit of a sub-point to this text. The, the big idea of this text is that Jesus comes before any other relationship, like Jesus first before any other relationship. But, but a bit of a, a sub-point here is that if, if Jesus' family didn't get it, if Jesus' family didn't uh, understand the mission of the cross and his radical life, then we shouldn't be surprised whenever our own families don't get it. Like, if we're really following Jesus, it should cause people to kind of look at us and go, whoa, like, we should make, like, some of the ways we live our life should make other people uncomfortable. So we shouldn't be surprised if some people in our family or, or just in our close friends don't get it. If Jesus' family didn't, then we can, we can expect the same sort of thing to happen. Uh, but, but the second thing to remember is don't water it down for their sake. Because I think a lot of times when that happens, you start to make people uncomfortable, especially those that you love and that are closest. Like you long for them to, to be saved and meet Jesus the way that you did, right? And so when, when they're uncomfortable with something, like we're tempted to kind of water it down and explain it away and make it a little more accessible so that they're not as offended so we don't push them away and, and, and they can maybe... Uh, we, we try to make the gospel more palatable, right? We try to kind of explain some of it away. But what, Jesus doesn't do that. If you think about his response here, he, he, they say, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are here. And he, he goes, who are my mom and brothers? Like, that's offensive. If you're Mary in that moment, like, your heart is broken that he, he just spoke about you that way. Like, that's offensive. But it's actually not quite as offensive as what he had said to, to Peter earlier on whenever Peter says, no, 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 no way are you going to go to the cross. I'll never let that happen. And Jesus says, you've got to get behind me, Satan. And what we see is that, that Mary and her brothers, just like Peter in that moment, they have their minds set on the things of man and not on the things of God. 
And Jesus says, I'm not going to compromise what God has called me to do or, or lay it aside or water it down because it makes you uncomfortable. And he says that to his family. And so we've got to remember that we don't water down or apologize for the gospel or apologize for loving Jesus more than our family just because it's making them uncomfortable. Like it's loving to let them feel the weight of the gospel. It's loving to let them feel the weight of Jesus's claim. We don't want to be jerks about it. We don't want to be harsh about it, but it is, it is loving to tell them the truth and let them feel the full weight of, of God's word. And then the last thing to remember is to give them time, to not give up on them. Because though his family isn't following him as a disciple, they're not on board with the mission to the cross, they're, they're not really in at this point, we, we, we can fast forward and see that actually whenever it comes to the end of his life, we know that his mom is there at the cross, that Jesus speaks to her, that he, he commissions John to kind of care for her. And then we get this really good news in Acts 1. After Jesus comes, he's resurrected, he comes back to life, and then he spends some time with his disciples, and before he ascends into heaven... Um, he tells them he's going to send a helper, but they need to wait in Jerusalem for them. And so they all gather in this upper room. And Acts 1, uh, 14 tells us that, that some of the people that were gathered there included Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so they did come around, and they did end up being worshipers and followers of Jesus. And, and we know that James, uh, one of Jesus' half-brothers, became actually one of the main leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And he's the author of the New Testament book of James. And, and I want you to kind of think, so some of you got family members that you're like, man, they're never going to get it. Like they're running the opposite way. I have no idea. But I want you to think about the, the testimony that it is for Jesus' own brother to end up bowing down and worshiping him to the point that he got martyred for his faith in his brother. Like if you have siblings, you know what they've seen you do, Right? You know the life, like, you're in close quarters. They've seen you at your worst. Like, and so if, if James can bow his knee to Jesus, like, God can uh, corral your family and cause them to be brought to repentance and, and trust in Jesus as well. So give them time. Don't give up on them. Engage them. Love them. Don't apologize for the gospel, but give them time. So as we move on, as we, as we keep going into this text, the second point is, is really that Jesus declares that when we follow him, we actually become a part of a new family, one that is centered on his father. And this is where we get the idea of community that we strive for in churches, right? And it sounds good for us to be a part of the family of God. And, it, and many times, like, churches will build community really without the gospel because it's actually pretty easy to gather people around, like, little affinity groups, like, it's actually not that difficult to, to, like, build community because people will naturally flock to people that are like them, right? Similar age, lifestyle, life stage, socioeconomic, like, um, income. Like, we, we, we are comfortable being around people that are like us, and we actually enjoy that. We crave that. So a lot of times churches, like, we can, we can put together community or, like, we can feel like we've accomplished biblical community because we have people gathering around different affinity groups, and, and the truth is, like, that kind of community can happen even if God isn't real. Right? Does that make sense? Like, we could actually accomplish that kind of community, because those are friendships, affinity groups, that kind of thing, even if God's not real. The type of community that Jesus is talking about here is, is true gospel community. And I want you to think about the, the picture that Jesus paints here, when, like, who he gestures to in verse 49. He says, and stretching out his hands, his hand toward his disciples, he says, are not these my, 
father and mother and, and brothers. He doesn't say father, mother and brothers and sisters. And so, but, but when he points to the disciples, I want you to think about who he's pointing to. Like, this is not an affinity group. You got some fishermen, right? Which in this day is a very rugged, very blue-collar, very simple, very, um, very smelly job, like non-educated. So you got, you got Peter and his bros that are some fishermen. And then you've got um, Matthew, the tax collector, and his st- staunch enemy, because Matthew works for the government. And then you got Simon, the zealot, who's trying to lead a charge to overthrow the government, right? Like, they are political enemies and yet, in Jesus, they've been brought into community. They've been brought into unity and following this bizarre man named Jesus. And that's just the inner circle of 12. Like the term here, disciples, indicates that it's probably the larger following of, of 120 and so that he's referring to. So in that group, you've got all kinds of sinners and, and rejects of society. Uh, a lot of the reason that the religious people are mad at Jesus is because who he's got in his, in his inner circle. Right? Who he said is okay to come follow him, who he's given a new life and identity and affirmation to and salvation to, because they, they feel like they should have earned they've earned it by being good, right? They've earned it with their own self-righteousness. They've they put God in their debt by by being good and following the rules. And Jesus comes along and says, Actually, hey, you, you there on the street corner, you there who has nothing, you there who are poor, you there who are sick, you there who no one's been able to heal, you there who are smelly and sinful and dark, like you come. And Jesus embraces them, and it, and it sends the religious people into riot. One standout from that group of people is Mary Magdalene. Like, she's essentially a, a former psych patient, right, who Jesus cast several demons out of. So this is, this is who the disciples are made out of. This is not an affinity group. These are not friends that would have naturally just drifted together. Only in Jesus, only in supernatural working do these people come into community. We see the same thing as you read on, in Acts. One of my favorite stories is how the church at Philippi was formed, right? The, the three founding members, the core group started with a, with a teenage slave girl that was demon-possessed and was being used to uh, be a spirit of divination and that kind of thing, right? So you got her, teenage slave girl. And then you've got a wealthy woman named Lydia who's a, who's a businesswoman, a very high-end, uh, wealthy business owner. And then you've got a blue-collar Roman soldier that's working the Philippian jail. And that's who becomes the the core group. Like those people don't hang out outside of Jesus, binding them together. So that's the kind of community that we're talking about here. Not just the ones that would naturally happen even if the gospel wasn't true, but the ones that only happen if the gospel is true. As we go on, Jesus tells us how this happens. This sounds good, and we try to mystify it, and we try to kind of guilt people into it or, or inspire people to be in that kind of community. But in reality, unless God has done a work, unless there's something else driving that, that we don't, we don't facilitate and manufacture that type of community. But Jesus tells us how it happens. And here's what he says. 49, stretches out his hands toward his disciples. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. So what he's saying here is, is this is how this happens, is when people are bound together, they're drawn together by doing the will of God. But, but then that's, like, that's still a pretty vague and undefinable term, right? Like people spend all kinds, like spilled all kinds of ink and spend all kinds of time trying to define what is the will of God for our life, right? Like that's like the number one question 
that people are asking all the time, like, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. And we're usually applying that to things like what, is, what should be my focus of study in, in school or what should be the career path that I choose or maybe what spouse, who should I marry, what, where should I live, things like that. I don't know what God's will is. And we wrestle with things like that and we kind of mystify it into this. But Jesus says, like, no, no, like, it's actually pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's pretty simple. And he, and he says this. Actually, he was asked that very thing in, in John chapter 6. Verse 28, and, and some of the people that were opposed to him, they said to him, say, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who was sent. Jesus says, you don't know what the will of God? You want to know what the works of God, how you spend your life doing the will of God? You believe on him who was sent. Now listen, a lot of churches have gone kind of wrong here by simplifying it and reducing the gospel down here and saying, okay, well, all we got to do is believe. And, and by saying all we have to do is believe, we're reducing the gospel to as though we've just got to pick the right box on a, on a uh, multiple choice selection, right? Like we've just got to choose the right religion and say, okay, actually, I believe Jesus is the Savior and not Buddha, not Krishna, not whatever, right? Like if I pick that, if I believe on Jesus, if I say this prayer, then I'm good, I'm doing the will of God, and then I can kind of just go back to my life as usual, right? Does that sound familiar? Like, that's, that's what a lot of, of uh, modern-day Christianity says. Like, we just don't want you to go to hell. And then what we've heard is, or what, what we've reduced down from a few verses, you just pray this prayer, and then you won't go to hell, and you're good. And then we just send people back off into their life. Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to believe on him who was sent. To believe on him who was sent, you've got to believe everything who, what, the, the guy who was sent, you've got to believe what he said. He says, I'm not just here to get your ticket out of hell. I'm here to redeem and restore all that has broken and you can come follow me, and you will find life. Right? So to believe is more than just kind of checking a box, making a statement, making a claim. To believe is, is actually much more than that. And it's actually going to be uh, unpacked even further when Jesus says um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Quite simply, Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, we want to make it about what we're going to do, like how we're going to spend our life. And he says, hey, hey, all that matters is your sanctification. It's a big word. It means to become like Jesus. Okay, so we are justified when we call on Jesus' name and we say, Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know you're the Savior. I'm confessing you as Lord over my life. Like, we are justified in that moment. God gives us a new heart. We are born again, and we will never again be held accountable for our sin. Like, if we trust Jesus as Savior, we're justified in that moment. But salvation isn't complete with just justification. We're going to now experience sanctification, which means we're going to increasingly become like Jesus. This is not a new thought. Like you, you fast forward, you zoom back out into the whole narrative. And what we realize is that we were made like Jesus. Right? You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. God made man, what? In his image. Male and female. He made it created. Like, so we were made to be image bearers of God. That means we're made to reflect God back. Like we're, we're, God told us to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with image bearers. That's what God's will was for the earth. We have fractured it with with sin, and now we've become not image bearers and, and God glorifiers, but we've become God rivalers. Like we've become people who are trying to get our own glory and rival God, and, and sin and selfishness has taken over, and it's fractured everything. Jesus says, I'm not that concerned about what job you do or even who you marry. What I want is for you to become like me. 
And you can become like me in the job you're doing and in the per- with the person that you've married. Or, or like, you can be, like, I will use those things to shape and mold you and make you into my image. He says, that's my will for you is that you be sanctified. But even that, like, there's, there's more to it than this. Like, we have to understand that that is being made back into the image. Like, that's being restored and made back into the original design that we, that's really to be made fully human. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, like when, if God asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Like our cry should be, heal me, make me fully human. Like make me like you, Jesus, get rid of my sin and give me more of you. Instead, we want to ask him for things that advance our glory and, and whatever. We, we've got a whole list of, of supplications instead of just saying, Lord, make me like you. And so really to be sanctified is to be made fully human, to really be brought fully to life. That's the, both the call and the command of Christianity, but really it's the invitation of Christianity. Because in order to do that, in order to become that kind of people, like there has to be transformation that takes place, right? Because we're not like that naturally and on our own. Like we're sinful and, and selfish. The Bible says we're actually dead. And in order to become like Jesus, in order to experience that new life, in order to pursue the will of God, like something transformative has to happen. And that's the glory of the gospel. That's the truth in which we've sang about, that Jesus came and gave his life. He lived the life that you and I could never live. All to the end that he's going to restore what was broken, restore what was lost, restore mankind's relationship to God, make us fully human again, give us joy, give us salvation, give us his presence again. He came, he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that only we deserve to die, not him. He wasn't sinful. He had no cause to be on the cross, but he gave his life. He died the death that we deserve to die. And then he was resurrected in a way that only the sinless Savior could be. And he generously gives us his righteousness. He took our sin, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. And in that moment, he's done away with the sin problem that has separated us from God. And so now he can indwell our spirit. He can indwell our bodies, our hearts, our souls with his spirit and begin to make us new again. And that's when the process of sanctification happens. Like That's what he wants is for us to back to the very beginning, fill the earth with a bunch of image bearers, right? Fill the earth with a bunch of people that reflect God's image. Like that's what he's leading us to, stirring in us, and that's his will for us. But a lot of times we think about sanctification is just about what we're not going to do, right? Like to stop sinning. Like that's kind of how we frame it. Like I need to stop doing bad things. That's what sanctification means. And, And it does mean those things, but it's more than that. It's becoming like Jesus, Right? It's so much more than that. It's to, it's to be like him and to love like he loves, to serve like he loves, to be on mission like he's on mission, to be generous the way that he's generous, to give our lives away the way that he did. Jesus says this is the way to true life, that we would lay down our own, lay down our ambitions and follow him. That's how we find true joy. Like to follow him in that day had a totally different impact on those hearers. Like somebody would follow a rabbi or a teacher, not to just gain information from them, not to just feel better about themselves, but to really uh, attempt to learn everything they could and really to become like them. Like so to follow Jesus is to long for uh, more and more of him and to try to and strive to become like him. That's God's will, that we become like him. Micah um, chapter 6, verse 8, boils it down really simply. God, he's, God says this, Told you, O man, what is good 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? That sounds like stuff that we should be doing, but listen, who embodies justice and kindness and humility? Jesus, right? That's what we were made to do, and Jesus comes to empower us to do that. So this is the will of God for us to to become like Jesus. But again, like I said, transformation has to happen, and that transformation happens when we die to ourselves and we're raised again into new life. Like that's, and we can't minimize that. Like, to just say the will of God, that's really vague, and go, okay, well, I can only be in community with people that are doing the will of God. Like, no, what would the will of God is people that are, like, striving to become like Jesus. Can't do that apart from the cross. Can't do that apart from the gospel. And what we realize, like, the reason we do baptismal uh, services and ceremonies is to really illustrate the, the dramatic nature and the radical nature of being saved by Jesus. Like, that we are dying to our old self, our old way of life, and being buried with Christ. And we're being raised again to walk in a new life that he empowers in us. And so that experience, much like if you've ever been on an intense or traumatic um, experience or gone through something with a group of people, you know that you're, you're just suddenly bound to them, right? That because you shared that experience, because you've been, like, you're bound to them in a way that it just happens kind of quick. Like, so the church is bound together by our transformation, by our Savior, and we're redeemed. And like, that's the foundation of Christian community, is that we all, we can look at each other and go, like, this is, I'm not here because I've earned this. I'm not here because I deserve to be. I'm here because I heard about the radical grace of Jesus. And my past, my resume, none of that matters. Because Jesus has washed it away, and he's making me new. That is the, is the cornerstone, the foundation of our community. In our baptisms, we, we always say that I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's beauty in that. We see God often give people a new name in the Bible, right? When he changes their life, he gives them a new name. So like we're saying our lives are no longer marked by shame and sin and guilt, right? Our new lives are going to be marked by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Like, I have his name now. I'm a part of this family now. It's a ceremony to to signify that we've joined this family. This is where the family of God and true community is formed. So, It doesn't mean, like, and so what he's going to say is, like, this new family that is formed is actually going to take precedence over our biological family. It doesn't mean we neglect them, ignore them, or diminish them. Jesus is going to still uphold his command to honor your father and mother. You'll see in other times where he's going to call out the Pharisees for actually abusing their father and mother. So, like, Jesus is going to say, no, you're still going to honor your father and mother. You're still going to love, pursue, be there for your family, but you're not going to apologize for loving Jesus more than them. So I want to close with a few reflections on what life is like as a part of the family of God. Again, this family is what God is choosing to really declare hope to the nations. Ephesians says that God is going to use, like through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known to principalities and powers throughout the the ages. Like God has chosen us to be the way in which he spreads his gospel. Like Jesus would say how we treat one another will be the biggest apologetic or testimony that we have, right? Remember that? That they'll know us if we love one another. They'll know us by our love for one another. How we treat one another when we've wronged each other or when, like, 
when, when we're suffering like that should be a radical testimony to the world that they can't explain to see people stepping across socioeconomic and political lines and preferences and affinities to serve and love and radically be there for one another. The, two, the New Testament contains uh, 51, 59 one another statements. So a big part of what God intends to do through his church is how we treat one another. We can get focused on mission a lot and think about how, and we need, to, we need to focus on mission. We need to focus on evangelism, how we treat the world. But we don't need to neglect. The Bible says, don't be weary in doing good, especially to those in the household of faith. So we need to serve one another. We need to have one another in a priority place in our life. So I can't get to all 59, but I want to give you just a summer, summary of kind of what it looks like to be a part of God's family. So in God's family, like we share the same father, which should like, preach a whole sermon on that, like that we're adopted by the God of the universe, that we can cry out, like through Jesus, we have access to his throne, we can cry out, Abba or Daddy, Father, that's incredible. So we share the same Father, but we also share the same hero, and he's our brother, and that's crazy. But our hero, like we're, we're united by, you, you know, like people that, like we're united by our heroes, like that just makes sense. Like you weirdos that are LeBron James fans, like you got your own little clique, right? You're knotted by your heroes. And then the rest of us that are sober-minded and think and know that Michael Jordan was the best player of all time, like we have our, our better clique, our better group. Like we're, we're united by our heroes. That's easy. You're going to a concert. You're going to a game. You, see, like, you know you've both gone to hear that person, watch that person. It's easy to have a conversation with them, right? You're in line at a concert. It's easy to talk about because you have an instant connection. We are bound by having the same father, but we also have the same hero. We share the same mission. That binds people together. When you have the same mission, the same goal, the same objective to accomplish, listen, this is not just a social club that we get to just hang out and do what we want until Jesus comes back. Like He gave us a mission to go into all the world and make disciples. We're bound by that. That brings community. When we lose sight of that, we get division. Right? You've seen that in churches. You lose sight of what you're supposed to do, who we're called to be, what mission we're on. Division happens instantly. We serve one another instead of using one another. There is just a default posture in the world that I'm gonna, I will use people to get myself further down the line to climb the ladder, whatever. Like, you have value to me if you have something to offer me, right? Like, that's the ethic of our culture. The ethic of Jesus' family, of God's family, of the church, is that Jesus said himself, like our, our, our hero, he says, I've not come to be served, but rather to be a servant and to give my life as a ransom for many. Like, we're, he, he models radically for his disciples as he washes their feet. He takes the utmost position of humility and washes their feet to show them that we're here to serve one another. And he says, this is a new command. I give like love each other. Like there's a whole section in scripture where he says like the church should look radically different from the world because we're serving each other instead of competing with each other. We don't give up on one another. Doesn't mean we water down the gospel, say it's okay. If you sin, it means that we pursue one another in discipline, but we don't give up. Like we're always seeking restoration. We value truth. Jesus says the truth will set you free. Right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. 
But he's going to go further and say, like, hey, but you need to start telling each other the truth. That doesn't mean just don't lie to each other. That means, like, actually tell each other what's going on. Tell each other the truth. James 5 says that confession leads to healing. 1 John invites us to the same thing, like that we should be a people that confess and run, like sin and, and secrets divide, right? And we've got to keep people away. We've got to keep people at, at a distance because we don't want anybody to know, right? So we've got to manage our lives. We've got to manage our, 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 our distance. Who knows us? But like the New Testament picture of the church is a people that run toward one another and say, I've got to confess. I need you to pray for me. I need you to forgive me because I need healing. So we value truth. And then lastly, we rely on one another for strength. I want to paint a, a, a beautiful, I want to show you a beautiful picture that God has painted as, as our closing um, illustration here. Uh, anybody ever been out to the West Coast and seen the Redwoods? So if not, you've probably seen pictures, heard about them. They're these giant trees that, that only live out there. And they're so huge that, that some of the bottoms are hollowed out and they can drive vehicles through them. You see people standing inside of them and, and they're, they're just, they're massive. They can live to be over, over 2,000 years old. That's crazy. They can, they can grow to be well over 300 feet tall. There's several known in the United, like in that area to be over 360 feet tall that are still alive today. The tallest oak is like 162 feet. They can be up to 8 to 20 feet in diameter. Like I, don't, like I don't have categories for that. Like that's, that's huge. They can grow up to 100 feet in their first 50 years of life. They can, they, again, they can live forever. They've got this incredible insulation. Like their bark can be like a foot thick. And then inside that, it contains this stuff called tannin, which protects the tree from fire, insects, fungus, and diseases. There's no known insect that can, can destroy a redwood tree. Fire is not a big threat because the trunk is thick and there's lots of water inside the tree. And the bark doesn't have the flammable resin like a pine tree does. So there's just this monster trees that... Draw people from all around the world. It's on my bucket list to go see them. Like, draw people from all over to go see. And there's this just incredible uh, sight that causes awe and wonder in us. And yet, it's really interesting if you take a look a little bit deeper. And it's really inspiring. You look at what their secret is to surviving. Their secret to not being blown over. Their secret to growing as tall as they do. So what is, what is the secret of the redwood? How can it last so long, endure so much? Um, and, and, and the thing is, unlike the palm tree who has like a taproot that's going to go just down just as deep as the tree is tall, right? So a palm tree, if it's 30 feet tall, it's got a taproot that's it's gone down 30 feet into the ground. The redwood has no taproot. And that's why you'll never see a redwood standing alone. You'll never see one growing by itself. It's always going to grow in a grove, in a cluster. Because the might of the tree is not in the tree itself. The strength of a redwood, its roots don't go deep. They're only about five or six feet deep. Isn't that crazy? But what they do is they go out really wide. And they grow and grow, so they entangle their roots together. And they become this bound together 
system of strength that can't be blown over by a storm because you're going to blow, can't blow one over without blowing them all over. Like they have bound themselves together by intertwining their roots. They send their roots out and not down. Beautiful picture that these trees, these monsters are held up by the strength of, of really their brothers and sisters. Listen, God knew what he was doing. Isn't that crazy? He just puts stuff like that in creation and lets us just be in awe of it. Let's us use it as an illustration to see how we're supposed to live a life with one another. Right? Like, you can't do this thing on your own. I don't care if you are really, really good at reading your Bible and you're in it every day and you're super devoted and you're saying, man, I'm going deep. I don't need other people. I'm going really, really deep. The Bible says, no, no, no. That tree is planted by the water, right? It's, far, like it's going to be planted by other people. And it's going to be uh, held together and bound together by the strength of its brothers and sisters. And it's going to be woven into each other's life so that our strength comes from one another and not from my own. And so that's how we withstand the attacks of Satan. That's how we withstand the droughts that are going to come. That's how we withstand the storms of life. You can't do this thing on your own, alone. There's no rogue Christian. We're called to be in community. Jesus said in John 17, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. My prayer for them, this is Jesus as his last night talking to his father. My prayer for them is that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, Father. That just as you and you are in me and I am you in you, so they will be in us, and the world will believe that you sent me.